WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the series Crimson Cage from AWA, as well as Hotel, Mountainhead, and other comics, John Lees. Welcome, John. Hi, thanks for having me on. I was a little bit thrown off there. We were talking about two best friends talking about comedy. I thought, well, I'm my best friend already. Then I remembered there was two hosts. So, <laughs> Listen, our guests are just best friends we haven't met yet. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, let's let's get to know you. Um, you know, what are what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Oh, wow. Um that's one of these good, these good questions, but probably every time I'm asked that, I give a slightly different answer because, like, you know, your <laughs> memories are a little bit dodgy as you get younger. But I remember, like, way back in the day, like, when I was really young, um, here in the UK, they had this thing called Sonic the Comic, which was every couple of weeks, it was like a Sonic the Hedgehog comic that released fortnightly for the price of, like, 99 pence. And it was un- largely uncredited, as far as I remember, in terms of writers and artists. But it was like lots of guys like Mark Miller and stuff were getting like, their first gigs like writing this book. And like, if you ask a lot of people my generation, like that was kind of like our first introduction to like comics was reading that stuff. Um, and this would have been like the early nineties, maybe. Um, but then I was also like a big fan of like um Batman and the likes, like pre-reading comics, like just when I was like young kid, like seeing the movies and the TV show and all that. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like my entry point into reading that. Like, it was like, you know, again in the UK they did like sort of special like, news agent edition, you know, copies of like, you know, Batman comics and things. And then I kind of branched out from there into like reading like I think Nightfall was the first like proper <laughs> um like but comic I read. Um also there was like a bunch of like Judge Dredd, Batman crossovers. I remember reading. I was a big Judge Dredd kid. Probably when I was far too young to be reading it, but like, you know, <laughs> I never got into the satire. I just thought it was this cool guy with a big gun that was killing people. Um but yeah, like you know, so then from there, I think like and then maybe around the late 90s, my mum got me for Christmas one year this big book called it the Marvel Guidebook because I was really getting into Spider-Man at the time and this book had to call it the history of like the Marvel Universe and I was like oh my god my mind's blown and from <laughs> there I jumped into Marvel as well and the rest is history. Yeah those uh those those DK books were uh a lot of uh people's gateways uh certainly Batman you know uh we, we ask this question a lot uh, as sort of an icebreaker when we start the show and there's there's a few common ones that you hear uh sonic the hedgehog comics though that is that's a new one that is that is yeah. fascinating um yeah no like i say weirdly enough if you ask like a bunch of very specifically a bunch of people like you know like my age range from the uk like mid-30s a lot of them because i thought it was just me until i got into it apparently there's a whole generation of like current comic creators whose like entry point was like these bizarre like news agent editions sonic the hedgehog tie-in comics probably made super cheap but widely available <laughs> I really now want to read Mark Miller's Sonic. I'm, I'm very curious. <laughs> Still his finest work. <laughs> <laughs> hey, his all-ages Superman is shockingly great. <laughs> or, or, or not, maybe not shockingly, but unexpectedly great for you don't expect that. <laughs> yeah, no, like I say, I can, it's funny. I think maybe like there's, again, like it's just that kind of fun energy of seeing someone do something you wouldn't expect them to be doing. Certainly. Uh, so uh, as we continue down this rabbit hole, uh, what are what are uh, and in keeping with with the comics that we're here to talk about today, uh, what are some of the first wrestling matches that you remember watching? Oh, wow. This is another one that goes like way back, maybe possibly even earlier than comics. Um, OK. 
Well, funny enough, with both comics, if you like, you know, Batman, etc., mm-hmm. and with wrestling, probably my first entry point was like toys and action figures and stuff. Like, you know, I had like, you know, mm-hmm. 1989 Batman movie action figures and I had like WWF Hasbro <laughs> action figures before I ever saw an actual wrestling match. But I quite specifically remember like one of the first um, wrestling events like, I ever watched would have been late 1991. I went into my uncle, me and my cousin, we were both in the wrestling, went down to my uncle's house and he had like a Sky subscription, um, which is where all the wrestling got shown. Um, nobody else <laughs> in the family had it. But, um, and then it was, we watched this event, it was like the Battle Royale in Royal Albert Hall in 1991. It was a UK event on Sky Sports, I think it was exclusive Sky Sports, and that was kind of like my first entry point into like watching, and soon after, another Battle Royale, it was the 1992 Royal Rumble, that was the first like new event like I watched, mm-hmm. um, and because if you're familiar at all with like that match, it's like a great kind of like entry point to wrestling, all the big characters of the era, like you know, Flair, Hogan, Bret Hart, Undertaker were all in there, um, and it's a good the match I still go back to enjoy now, and again, um, after that, I was kind of hooked on wrestling. I managed to source as many old 80s tapes out of my local video shop as I could. And then, like, you know, to varying degrees, I've been following it and watching it, like, um, from the 90s, um, through all the highs and lows, right through to now. Now, uh, Matt, I was interested in you answering this question, too, because you grew up in a house, you had two younger brothers, and they both ended up being wrestling fans. Uh, you know, so what was your kind of exposure you know with it being on in the house you know it was on a lot in the background for me okay i I might have weird like wreck blending of comics with wrestling just because i'd be sitting there reading my comics while my brothers were watching that same era of uh late 90s early aughts because okay my 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 brothers for the don't are we're five years apart i'm the eldest of three mm-hmm. so by the time that my youngest brother was around eight nine ten and my middle brother was then in his early teens just around the time i was going to college that's when they got really big into it so whenever i would come home home from break it was wall-to-wall wrestling while yeah. i'm just sitting here's like can i see what happens with apocalypse and cyclops or the end of no man's land while you two are screaming please <laughs> i mean it's quite fun though because like that period like late 90s early noughts was like a big boom period for like this i was like stone cold steve austin the rock and all that like you know that was a good time again then i remember i mean i got into like in the early 90s that was like you know it was kind of on a downward turn um and then nobody cool was watching it back in half like it was kind of like after Hulkamania, but before, like, you know, Austin 316. But for me, that's why I'm always, like, a Bret Hart kid. Like, Bret Hart was the main star when I first got in there. So I was always, like, right in there. Like, I was actually one of those kids where I was just that age where I was actually angry at Steve Austin, like, you know, for, like, you know, like, being writing against me. Why is everybody booing Bret Hart? He's right, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's quite funny hearing different people's memories of different eras and different generations. Yeah, now, uh, for me, uh, I wasn't like wrestling was the thing that was on after cartoons on Saturday mornings in the eighties. And I, I distinctly remember, or as distinctly as you can remember something from 35 years ago, uh, there was uh, an animated show, uh, Hulk Hogan's oh, Rock and Hulk Wrestling. Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. Yes. Yeah. So that was sort of my inroad that and like 
uh, Captain Lou Albano doing uh, the Super Mario Brothers Super Show in like the late 80s. So it was that sort of stuff around wrestling, but like in that era when like wrestlers were becoming celebrities in their in their own right. Um, I don't think I got into wrestling. I, I had like a three year phase like in in college where I was watching like Raw and SmackDown uh, every week. And that so that was kind of my era, like like the downslide of like Degeneration X and like mm-hmm. Hogan and The Rock. Yeah. Uh, you know, right up until like when they did made Raw and SmackDown like basically two separate camps and had the yeah, draft. The draft split. Yeah. Um okay. So so one one final uh icebreaker question before we get into uh the meat here. What is the first Shakespeare play that you remember reading for pleasure, not because you were forced to for school? Hmm. That's actually interesting because like it's kind of a weird question to ask in the sense that the two kind of linked for me because <laughs> like I ended up like studying like Shakespeare in school then oh. passed after I graduated from school like I went to university and I took like Shakespeare as an elective like you know then and at that point I ended up being like pretty much all the Shakespeare stuff like you know so I pretty much read or read all of it like in a educational setting of some form or another um <laughs> but you know but at the same time I was taking a lot of pleasure out of it and I went back and revisited a lot of it later on down the line as well okay um I do remember like I went through King Lear a lot, like well past the point where I I, uh, I had to. So if I if I did have to pick a favorite uh, play, that's probably me. Uh, Matt, how about you? Now, that, that's two very different questions about favorite is, or first. That's fair. Because I'm, I have an English literature degree with a specialization in Shakespearean studies. So I've I read the majority of the canon for class but i'd read a lot of it before then uh but first one i read that was not for class would have been caesar mm-hmm. because i it was also the first one i saw on stage so after i saw it on stage i read the play and that was right at the beginning of high school and so i wasn't quite all ready for as deep a dive into shakespeare Julius Caesar is not the place to start. You understand why they start you with Romeo and Juliet or yeah. Midsummer, because those are nice, easy entry points, and Caesar is not. Mm. Uh, favorite is probably Othello. I, I love yeah, I like Iago. I love the, that Vice character. Although I, when it comes to something more obscure, I love Measure for Measure for four acts. The final act of Measure for Measure is a train wreck. <laughs> but the the first four acts of Measure for Measure are great. Yeah. No, it's funny, like, you mentioned about, like, seeing it performed because, or Caesar performed, because for me, like, that's a totally different experience. Like, you know, that's one of the kind of things that opens up to you. Like, reading a Shakespeare play, like, you know, and then seeing a Shakespeare play performed are, like, two very different experiences. <laughs> so, uh... Yeah, we are here primarily to talk about uh, Crimson Cage, your uh, pro wrestling meets Macbeth series from uh, AWA with uh, Alex and Ashley Cormack and letterer uh, Hassan Osman Elhow. Um, Matt, since you are probably the Shakespeare, well, since you are the Shakespearean expert of the two of us, plus you grew up with wrestling fans in your household, uh, I believe that makes you the better suited to read the solicit text for this one for the listeners. 
New Orleans, 1984. Chuck Frenzy is the main event star of the local Louisiana pro wrestling territory, but yearns for something greater. A fateful encounter with a trio of terrifying beings in the bayou gives Chuck a glimpse of a championship glory beyond his wildest dreams, if he's willing to do something terrible to achieve it. That was very well read. <laughs> Thank you. I'm hiring you to my official voiceover guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're not the first to say it, and I'm always willing to do it. <laughs> I'm just going to hang you know, John is having some cereal right now, and it's very tasty, you know. <laughs> Oh, man. So, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about sort of the the, the influences uh, going into it, but what is what is the origin of this project? You know, when did you uh, kind of first uh, conceive well, of throwing like all this in a blender? Oh, uh, there's multiple levels of origin, you know, which I'll happily go into some length if you bear with me. But um, for me, like going back to talking about origins of like Shakespeare and stuff, Macbeth was one of those plays where like I read that, I think it was first year of high school. And Shakespeare, like for most people, like Shakespeare isn't fun in high school, like associated, like, you know, you give you know, you're in a class and everyone's like, they don't want to be there. I loved like the Shakespeare lessons when we were doing Macbeth. I just couldn't wait to get through it because for me, even back then, I was already like a wee horror loving weirdo, like, you know, who's obsessed, like, you know, like Scream was my favorite movie and stuff like that, you know. And like, so. For me, when I read this and was starting to get into it, my point, you know, like, you know, like the big light bulb over my head going, this is a horror. Like, you know, it's like witches and murder and like ghosts and decapitations and ambition. And, you know, it's all that kind of like cocktail stuff. So I always loved Macbeth um, as a story. And I think it was when I saw um, the Michael Fassbender, the Justin Cursell verse back in 2015, that kind of reignited that old love of Macbeth that I remember watching this and going, oh yeah, I remember I used to love this play and like, uh, you know, read it over and over again and, you know, like did essays and whatever about it. Um, and then that kind of brought me to seek out other versions of Macbeth to watch. And the one that was the real kind of big major informative text for the Crimson Cage was when I watched Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, which has became one of my all-time favourite movies. Like, I've rewatched that, I don't know how many times over the past, like, several years. Um, and I remember I was watching this, and I was thinking, like, it's so clever how they take the story of Macbeth, and then they kind of recontextualise it, you know, against, like, Feudal Japan and Samurai, where... Like, you know, it's the same story, but it's not. It's like different characters that are recontextualized by being in this different place. Like, what would my version of that be? And then I remembered that going back years to the earliest, like, point in my comic career, I've always wanted to do a wrestling comic where I had this idea of doing something set in the 1980s territory system, you know, because I loved that. Even though that was a little bit before my time in terms of, like, being a wrestling fan, I just always thought it was a fascinating era of history. How it kind of fit into the wider pop culture in America and the time of change and all that, and as I loved, I loved that backdrop. I just didn't have a story. I didn't have a kind of send like something to use that framework for. So take that kind of like you know backdrop without a story, and pair that with like this idea of like oh I'd love to do a version of Macbeth, but what would the backdrop be? And the kind of like the two kind of merged together. I was like oh my god, this is amazing. And the more I thought about it, it very quickly started to take shape. Because you know what, you know, one of those times, like, you know, sometimes you'll think of an idea and you go, oh, that's great. And when you actually think about it for five minutes, like, you'll go, no, that's actually shit. Uh, like, like, I remember at one point, like, you know, I woke up, I, I'd, I'd had a dream that um, it was, um, was the actor that played Omar from The Wire. 
and the guy who played Chips in Sons of Anarchy had teamed up to solve scar-based crimes. I remember waking up and going, this is going to be an amazing idea. And I spent a day, like, you know, because in my dream, like, I made this comic and it was a massive success. Like, you know, that's and I spent, I spent a day, like, trying to figure out, like, no, this idea sucks. So, so like, I was thinking, like, you know, <laughs> um, so I thought, at first I thought I, I was having another, like, you know, situation with that. I was going, like, I'm going to sit and think about this. It's just going to be terrible the more I think about it. But quite the opposite, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, oh my God, this is actually like a really, you know, good idea. Like, you know, and I'd never think of that. I mean, I'm not like pure, you know, super modest. Like, I think I'm quite a good writer, but I don't think I'm a great idea guy. Like, most of the time when I'm pitching something, it's like some like bad stand-up comic because like, you know, stumbling through his act going, oh, and actually this thing happens earlier on that I forgot to mention. So, you know, so um, it was like nice to have this time when I could say, you know, this is a story, it's a retelling of William Shakespeare's my best set against the backdrop of like 1980s Southern Pro Wrestling Territories. And like in one sentence, you can tell like someone's going to like react to that one way or the other, going to tell whether they like it or not. So I was so pleased with this idea and all the little things that kind of fit together, like the way that my best story fits with like wrestling in terms of like replacing King with like champion and replacing like, you know, instead of like the King coming to visit my best castle, he's coming to like, you know, Chuck Frenzy's, like, local territory, and even things like an upcoming issue, um, without going too spoilery, um, like, the whole sequence um, in Act 3 of Macbeth, where, like, you know, all the lords come for a grand banquet in Macbeth's castle, like, that's, like, a battle royale, and then, like, you know, and, like, and this is the whole wrestling on, like, you know, multi-man match. Um, so, and even things like, um, in Macbeth are all Shakespeare's tragedies, You'll have this device of the soliloquy, like, you know, where the main character will step out from the drama and kind of turn to the camera or turn to the audience, I should say, like, you know, and talk to directly to the audience, say, here's what's going on inside my head. But I thought even that works with wrestling because from issue two onwards, we have like these sequences where characters give soliloquies, but in the comic, it is they've got a microphone and they're doing a direct to camera promo, like with the curtain behind them and they're talking and they're giving them their thoughts. And so this is this works so well, it pairs together so well. And the more I thought about it, the more excited I got. And this is going back to like maybe 2017 when I first thought this idea. So it's been a long time, like, you know, like in gestation before then I started like thinking about pitching it. Um, I think I was actually talking to Alex Cormack, who I'd been working with on Sync at the time. I think I talked to him about this idea. It would have been late 2017, maybe early 2018 at the latest, probably late 2017. And I was talking about this idea, like, I'd love to do this someday. And I was like, well, why don't we do it? And then, like, I was like, well, what about Sync? You know, we're working on Sync. And now it's like, remember, I'm a mutant. It can, like, do multiple comics at once. So, like, you know, <laughs> um, so, like, then we started developing the idea. Like, and then the rest is history. We spent, like, 2018 developing the pitch and pitching around a little bit. And in 2019, um, AWA picked it up. And, like, so I spent a little while with AWA in development. We kind of, like, went back and forth about what the format of it would be, kind of, like, doing some pitching back and forth, refining the idea. And I remember it would have been February 2020 when we finally signed the contract. Me and Alex, this book's definitely happening. Mm-hmm. And in one of the most ominous um, text messages in history, I'd sent a message to Alex saying, it's finally happening. Unless societies, we know it, collapses, uh, this comic's definitely coming out in 2020. <laughs> Very <laughs> and, poor choice of words. Well, <laughs> and, 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 and listen, uh, remember, this is the publisher. 
that launched with a pandemic comic in March of 2020. So yeah, exactly. There's layers here. And, and the launch week, if not, even more specific than launch with a pandemic comic in 2020, they had a big planned coordinated launch event with their four launch titles with signings on both sides of the Atlantic. It was a big massive event. Their launch day was the day that everything shut down in comic shops closed. <laughs> like, so, yeah, I felt I jinxed like, the whole company, the whole creative team with my like, unwise words. Whew. I think I think I went, I went off that track there. <laughs> what was the question well, again? Let's see. The contract's being signed in February 2020, and, and then two years passed. Now there's a comic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they all have to have one after. And in all fairness, you answered the question we asked and like the next two or three in that yeah. one answer. Yeah. So good on uh, you. It's very, <laughs> very proactive. You have to be the few answer. So, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, let's get a little, uh, uh, you know, into the sort of nitty gritty of the creative uh, process here. So you're working with Alex, you have a history with, with, with Alex. Um, when it comes to the wrestling scenes itself, you know, when you're scripting the blow by blow, are you, you know, very, you know, are you, are you, are you basically just sort of saying, you know, Alex go nuts like how how tightly I guess uh for those specific things are you scripting um well a lot of the time you know like I, as you say I've worked with Alex a lot over many years but we did oxymoron lovely statement together we've been working on sync together for years with more sync coming this year um but with that, and like also a lot of time I've you know gained a lot of trust in Alex to say, like, we'll just do this, like here mm-hmm. we get from point A to point B, come up with your own ideas. But with this, um, I knew that one, I had very specific ideas of how I wanted it to be visualized. Um and two, uh Alex wasn't as familiar with wrestling as I was. Like he watched it a lot as a kid with his older brother, but I was the person that was kind of like carrying burden of like knowing a lot about you know like the wrestling and stuff. So for this specific story, like I've read a lot of wrestling comics, um, both in preparation for doing this and just because I like reading wrestling comics. But <laughs> um, I've noticed, like you know, there's, there's good wrestling comics, there's bad wrestling comics, and everywhere in between. But a lot of the time, what you often see is in a wrestling comic, there's the story, like this, here's the here's the storyline, here's the conflict between the characters, here's the journey, the kind of like. The, the arc, the main protagonist is going on. So this is going on, and then all that stops where we have like wrestling for the page. It's like a montage of moves, and then we go back to the story again. And it's like, so the wrestling is just kind of like surface dressing, or there's a disconnect between like you know the story and the wrestling. And I thought for this comic, I want the wrestling to be the story in a lot of senses. So and for that to work, I had to do a lot of like beat by beat going. Here's what's going on. Um, and you know, and in the scripts, you have to see them like probably to exhaustive, like borderline annoying detail, like you know, I've been describing, like you know, like there's little things in the script, like I'll say, make sure that you know, th- this scene when someone's getting kicked in the head, there's no kicking sound effect because it's not an actual kick, it's a working stomp, you know, or like you know, when Charlene, you know, Chuck's wife falls off the apron, like make sure you see that she's putting both her hands down so the impact sound isn't coming from like her hitting the ground, it's from her hands slapping the ground. And like um, 
and like little things like the, the dynamics of the characters, like certain scenes there's gonna be characters in conflict where they're working against each other in the ring, you know, or they're not kind of like gelling with each other. And other points I want to show the kind of level of cooperation that's going on, how this is like two people who know and trust each other, who are like, you know, working to tell a story of being in conflict. And especially as the series goes on, the kind of like line, the lines between like what's real and what isn't are gonna start blurring a little bit, where hopefully like, you know, people are going to start questioning, like, am I watching a wrestling match? Am I watching two people actually having a fight? Um, and so there's a lot of, like, work for that to go into it. Um, Alex, you know, in his turn then brought a whole other dimension to the storytelling. He brought some really clever visual tricks where if you read through, the, if you read interviews with Alex or, like, you know, you look at the book, you'll see that. A lot of the time, there's two different camera angles he uses. He uses the kind of like from the audience viewpoint where you have like, you know, as if our POV is like from within the audience, we're looking at the ring from the outside. And whenever Alex uses that stuff, that's for the sequences where we're watching the matches, like people on TV are watching the matches. Oh, we're watching like, you know, good guy Chuck Frenzy having to like fight the big scary monster, like Grudd, um, or like having to fight the villain Van Emeron. We're just watching the story of the matches, but you know, like, but then there's the them whenever like it seems where like, you know, Van Emeron just talking to Chuck and he's saying, like, you know, go hit me off the ropes and we'll do this really cool move to impress the audience or having a conversation. At that point, Alex moves his POV closer to inside the ring. So it's like inside the ropes, and we're part of like behind the scenes, we're behind the curtain, we're kind of like cooperating with them or listening to what's going on. And that whole like back and forth is not even immediately obvious, but he's working, he's operating in two tiers of storytelling, um, kind of like the performance and the reality all in one sequence. I think it's just this has been sort of fun stuff we got to do with that. And in terms of like the specific wrestling aspects of it. Um, a lot of times I would have to, I would throw out a reference like, you know, oh, and at this point, uh, Chuck Frenzy hits Van Emerald with a Kazuchi Okada top rope drop kick. And um, Alex is like, I don't know what any of those words mean. <laughs> so I would then, like, you know, explain to him, like, you know, for example, um, a top rope drop kick for me is like one guy gets sat in the top turnbuckle and then Okada, like, or Chuck Frenzy like jumps up and kicks him off but Alex didn't know how to draw that so you had like, Van Emerald kind of resting against the ropes instead um, so eventually it got to the one point when I started the Zoom call with Alex and I brought out some action figures and I'm like okay what I mean is <laughs> and I'm acting out like you know like what happens and saying and then this happens and this and this and this, and this and like and so that's the very sophisticated process of writer artist collaboration which goes into like the development of these pages you know it's a, it's a, a science of finesse I, I mean, listen, what are, what are comic fights if not action figures being smashed together? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I love it. I thought you were going to come at me with like some photo reference or I showed him highlights from like WrestleMania 21 or whatever. No, we went right to the well, LJ. Oh, I, I did a little bit of that as well. Like, you know, as, as you go, I'd send them matches and things. Here's a match to get in the for the vibe I'm wanting for this, you know, match <laughs> or just get you in the mood or like send a little archival clips to give them a sense of the whole vibe and like the aesthetic. So I did a lot about that too. But if you can get some action figures going <laughs> and do that too. Absolutely. Um, so uh, you, you mentioned sound effects already and uh, how, you know, how they're used to sort of mirror the, the, the kayfabe of, of, of pro wrestling, which is fascinating. I was curious who, handled sound effects because it can be different from book to book whether it was alex whether it was haas whether you know they were kind of working in combination um well for me like 
always like to script sound effects. And I'm quite, one of my kind of like things that I like to do is, if I can, I'll avoid using a sound effect like bang, smash, thud. Mm-hmm. I always try and do something that's kind of like vaguely automatic, like, you know, and stuff. So I'll be sitting here like sounding out sound effects, like shh, just, you know, it's trying to write down like, you know, what fits. Um, that's like 90% of a writer's job is like sitting making noises in the chair. Um, but <laughs> like, yeah, like, so I very much like, you know, was involved in like putting together sound effects, but then like Cass brought a whole other dimension to it in terms of like thinking how these would be shaped on the page. Mm-hmm. And he did such a great job in kind of like the way he uses the sound effects and kind of weaves them into the fabric of the page and creates this sense of like, you, know, you almost hear the sound of what's going on in this, you know, this wrestling match with like what Haas does it was actually over the moon to be working with Haas on this because um, with Sync um, me and Alex work together it's Sean Lee who's um, been the letterer who is like a great letterer like he's such like a consummate professional but at the time we were first developing the Crimson Cage I had Sean working on Sync I had him working on Mountainhead and I had him working on Depender all at the same time I thought I'll maybe give Sean a break and I'll see who like else is like you know like working right now um, and then I was thinking what I love what letters would I like to work with and I was such a big fan of Hassan's you know with all the work he's done like you know in various like indie comics and and mm-hmm. also like is as I kind of comics mind, you know, with the likes of panel by panel or um you know strip call strip panel naked. And like so I thought it would be a lot of fun to get Hass on board and like he's been great. Like he's been the high, he's had great like ideas for the story. He's been engaged in like chat with me and Alex. And um I, I think a big part of the fact that you know that a big reason why this comic exists today and is actually happening is because of the absolutely brilliant pitch package that has put together for it um we had kind of like put together this package which i'm going to share publicly once the book's all released you know and mm. i don't have to worry about spoilers or spoilers for a 400 year old story you know what i mean uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know it ends badly but you know, but like um but you made it all like an old 1980s like wrestling pay-per-view card with like you know like poster style like you know and it looks so cool and so immersive and yeah so Hass has done a great job he's been a real great contributor to the book and yeah I think like for me what a great letter does everyone always talks about like you know um, you know you don't you don't, that, you know, always say oh you don't know it's a letter unless it's bad lettering but I don't think that's true like you know a good letter not only draws attention to themselves but draws attention to everything because the way um, Hass like is you know like guided the eye around the page is that he actually like but I always feel like I've not properly seen even Alex's art until I'm seeing the final print proof. Because Alex will send me the pages he's drawn, and I'll go, they're great, they look great. And I'll see that, and I'll see Ashley's coloured pages, go, they're great. But it's only when I see the, you know, the printer proof with the sans lettering on it that I go, wow, I never picked up that detail before. My hasn't hadn't been drawn to that until, like, you know, it was shaped in a certain <laughs> way or I was focusing in on certain points and it really adds depth to the page and kind of nuance. And, yeah, so I think Hass has done a fantastic job. Absolutely. And, and you know, you're, you're, you're right. People do know. I mean, there's there's a reason, you know, when, when Hass is lettering a book, it usually, and you know, we've got a guest coming on. He usually comes up in the conversation. Yeah. Uh, so, um let's uh we we did get uh, a couple of twitter questions uh oh. so we're gonna, gonna check in with our good oh, them are like why are you getting john lee's in the show the standards have really slipped <laughs> uh, <laughs> cut that question out <laughs> no, um 
our our, our good friend uh, Asma Fangirl uh, asks, uh, which Shakespeare character or story is best suited for a luchador wrestling setting? Hmm. Um. I'm not sure. That's a, that's a good question because, like, obviously, like, you know, there's like little elements of, like, you know, like, luchador iconography in, like, the Crimson Cage as well as it goes on. But honestly, like, I don't know. I think, like, in general, like, I found that a lot of wrestling, sto- a lot of Shakespeare stories fit, like, you know, wrestling as a whole. And I've thought about different types of wrestling, different eras of wrestling. Like, I've thought of certain stories which would fit really well for like, the world of, like, puro wrestle, like, in Japanese wrestling and stuff. But I don't know, maybe because I'm a little bit less familiar with, like, um, like Luchador wrestle, Luchador Libra. I've not actually, like, thought so much about, like, you know, what Shakespeare story would fit in that. But I'm now going to have to go and think about it and see if I can come up <laughs> with a good answer. Sure. Um, I, I want to say it has to be something with the comedies with all the identity swapping, the masks. Yeah, that's I a good point, actually. You know, yeah, I could see that working, you know. Yeah. Even something in that, the, uh, the problem, something like the Tempest, where I get with, I mean, a Caliban, you know, a big. Yeah. Or, or like some kind of, like, even like a Midsummer Night's Dream type thing, I think it would be quite really well. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. A, a bottom donkey mask wrestler. I'd be all about that. Yeah, that'd be great, actually. I'm just, I'm just taking these ideas down so I can steal them. <laughs> oh, yours! Donkey mask <laughs> for the uh, for for the Shakespeare wrestling expanded universe, of course. Oh, oh yeah, no, like no, see, see, so like if 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 it kills me, I will manage to sell AWA on like the Shakespeare wrestling verse. You know, before it's all said and done, I've got about a half dozen ideas already. I'm ready, got lined up, ready to go. <laughs> Listen, Axel, uh, hotel's going on hiatus. We're putting all our stock in this. <laughs> like, I, I know what like, you want to do this, like, shared universe, like, you know, the resistance or something, but what about shared wrestling universe then? <laughs> so, uh, Chuck, uh, in, the, in the, the, the heart-to-heart scene he's having with Van, keys in on an important thing uh, that wrestling is storytelling same as comics you know they're both about larger than life characters telling big sometimes silly stories um do you remember the first time that you kind of made that connection as somebody who grew up you know loving both those things on terms of like wrestling being storytelling or like yeah 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 um it's interesting because like there's it's almost like a kind of a difficult process or like a, I almost don't know what's happening like where you go from like appreciating it as a story to like you know you know where you go or you go from like thinking it's real and watching something to like you're appreciating it as a story and I actually think that like a lot of, this is why it always annoys me when folk go oh yeah like I don't like wrestling because it's fake but actually like I think my appreciation of wrestling grew more when I realized like you know it was like you know, like predetermined as a story. I think going back to what I mentioned earlier on, um, probably um, the stuff with like Bret Hart, um, like his eventual turn to be, you know, it was like the famous WrestleMania, I think it was WrestleMania 13. Um, don't kill me if I got that wrong. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, know to tell you. When, <laughs> <laughs> but like, it was like when, um, after like the, half of them having been feuding for a year, um, like Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was like, you know, like the baddest bad guy, like, you know, trashing Bret Hart's family, like swearing, beating people up, beating up referees, beating up announcers, and like the good, honorable, um, noble Bret Hart who'd been, you know, 
brought out of retirement, you know, from like Steve Austin trashing his family and things, and like you know, and then like so it was a class. In some ways, it was a classic like you know like good guy versus bad guy story. But then something really weird started to happen, which was everyone started cheering Steve Austin and everyone was like booing Bret Hart because like they thought of Bret Hart's outdated and boring now. Like, and why are we going to like, you know, cheer this nerd who's slapping fans' hands and like, you know, and you know, like kissing babies. And like, and then when it came to like the big WrestleMania 13 showdown, over the course of the match, this like 20 minute match or so, they switched places and it's like, um, and like over the course of this match, like Stone Cold Steve Austin, like, you know, is, busted open he's all bloody face but he still keeps on fighting and won't give up and Bret Hart increasingly frustrated by all the fans booing for him starts taking like shortcuts and dirty tricks and like beating them up and like not letting go like you know and like over the course of a single match they make it official where Stone Cold becomes the hero and Bret Hart becomes the bad guy and it's like one little moment I still remember to this day which is after the match is finished like you know Bret Hart's like officially became a bad guy turned heel and he's walking out the ring and everyone's like booing him and like throwing trash at him like in the spin and he like you know Bret Hart's playing the part of like you know like the bad guy and this one kid in a Bret Hart t-shirt still like doesn't want to believe that he's not a bad guy is reaching out like you know to slap his hand and like Bret Hart like you know like walks away and like you can see this moment where he's thinking and he goes back and kind of like you know slaps the kid's hand even when everyone else is booing him and it's like you know because in the story Bret Hart doesn't think he's a bad guy Bret Hart still thinks he's like the good guy so what would make perfect sense that he would still want to like you know slap the hand of a kid that believes in him you know and that was that I remember watching that and thinking oh this is really good storytelling that was like really good you know and I, so yeah I think that was probably the moment where I think I kind of like the, made the switch of thinking like you know oh this is good storytelling versus like this is real and I'm believing what's happening <laughs> That's, that, is a, that is a fascinating little moment uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so when it came time to refresh your memory on Macbeth did you go back and, and reread the original text uh, you know, were you what you know watching all these different productions? You mentioned a few of them earlier, um, or did you do what so many of us, at least in America, uh, did in high school and skim the Cliff Notes or the modern Cliff Notes uh, Wikipedia? <laughs> well, no, uh, well, I, I, actually, I did also read Wikipedia in addition to all, like you know, but. <laughs> When I first started working on it, I went back and the copy of the play I still have, I was, I was actually about to produce it as a visual reference, but like two weeks ago, I, I tidied it away when I put my Christmas decorations on. I don't have it on my desk, but like for the, like the past couple of years, I've had a copy of my old high school edition of my Beth, which I've always get, but like, you know, my 1990, whatever, like, you know. Um, so I sat and read the whole thing of that beginning to end, put fresh annotations on it. And after doing that, I then went back and I watched the Orson Welles Macbeth and I watched the um, Roman Polanski Macbeth and I watched the, I rewatched um both the Justin Curzel and Akira Kurosawa versions and I took notes on all of them and I figured out like, what, are the, what are the things that are consistent what are the things that are changed what is each one how does each one approach the character of Macbeth like you know what conclusions can I draw of Macbeth what things have these ones not done that I can maybe do differently Um, like what are things I would change if I was like writing this story if this was like a story that had been written before and I was writing and now how would I do it um and so I had to ask myself all these questions and like I really poured over like 
all the minutiae of like, you know, each moment and thinking, how can I interpret this? How can I interpret like, you know, for a modern audience, like, you know, are there, you know, like Lady Macbeth like going mad because she's guilty? Like, does that fly with a modern audience? Would they buy into that? Um, it's like there are various other questions like I have to ask, like, you know, like you know, what's the real motivation, but, you know, behind, you know, Macbeth turning on Banquo. Um, I had all these these like questions I was asking myself and we're trying to pick apart the play and I you know and over the course of like redrafting and like you know and I think the first issue especially I redraft more than any comic I've ever redrafted in my life but then the editors are really good at this as well in terms of like because they had the good knowledge of the text and they were saying like what you're trying to do with this how are you going to bring in your version of that um and like so there were certain things like you know that I thought or oh, I can change this or do this, but certain things we've kept consistent. Like in early drafts of the Crimson Cage issue one, even there was like there was like more like um elements of like the witches or the Bayou sisters, as they're called in our story. It was more instances of them being more actively involved in the story and kind of like shifting little things to kind of like nudge, you know, Chuck Frenzy along in the direction they wanted them to go. Uh, and it was actually like the editors, it was Mike Costa, I don't know, it was like, no, no, like, you know, ultimately it has to be. You know Chuck Frenzy's choice, like they can't decide anything for him. It has to come from like you know him. They tell him like what he wants to hear or give him the information, and it's up to him how he interprets that. Like you know, if they get involved in any way, it kind of cheapens his fall, which was an absolutely correct note. One hundred percent, I agreed with it. Um, and so yeah, like you know that kind of like ended up becoming like my kind of guiding light as well. Like I thought I don't want to have them too directly involved, but ultimately what I thought of was Macbeth is. The roadmap, like that's the kind of like the dest the end destination is the end of Macbeth. So we're on that road, but we're free to take detours. We're able to like you know maybe take a wee diversion, go somewhere different, explore something else new. As long as we ultimately end up back on that road, because like this isn't like Macbeth. It's not like Chuck Macbeth. This is like you know a new character with his own motivations. You know who has who's built up from the archetype of Macbeth. So because like you know I'm. Doing a story that's like with someone that's new, I'm somewhat liberated to have like take new you know approaches to his thought processes, you know, and like have them go slightly different directions, but ultimately end up in the same place. Um, Matt, just out of curiosity, did you ever go for the cliff notes when you had a paper due on Shakespeare, or were you a good boy every time and read Titus Andronicus cover to cover? Uh, I would invariably buy these wonderful, fairly cheap paperback editions that came from the Folger Shakespeare Library mm. that had good annotations with each act. I, I read each play the first time I needed to read it cover to cover, but by the fourth class I was in that I covered Hamlet. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, I know this play. If I need a specific detail, <laughs> I'll use the annotations to find that scene and probably read that scene but i don't need to read hamlet for the fourth time no if it's a hamlet great play but that one it's, it's yeah. funny you mentioned that actually hamlet was a play it took me a while to warm to because i remember i first was introduced to hamlet in high school um and the class i very specifically remember it was one of the last classes in a friday afternoon um the teacher that was teaching it um didn't trust any of the students to read the place. He was going to read every part himself um, in a very dull monotone voice like this when he spoke. And it also, like, you know, cranked up the heating to maximum in this class. So 
I slept through most of Hamlet. Either the first, the first, you know, it was only like, you know, when I got into university, I was like, oh my God, Hamlet's actually good. Yeah. I think what you said before about, I think we might have learned a lesson here because the first one, well, I saw Caesar on stage before I read any Shakespeare. The first one I had to read for a class was Macbeth. So I think what we're learning here is that if you want to get high schoolers hooked on Shakespeare, start with Macbeth. Yeah, Macbeth, Macbeth like, you know, it's a, a great play, like, you know, in terms of getting people on board, like, you know, I think you know, that's, like, that's a really good thing. Um, but also, again, like maybe well, something as well, let's say, as if you can take kids on a field trip and like show them the play. I mean, I remember what a revelation it was, like when it was actually a student play about I saw of Hamlet. And it was the whole bit of like the famous to be or not to be. Like it never, I was actually what was only watching that play that it clicked for me that the whole to be or not to be speech is him like acting up and playing because he knows that they're listening in the background. So he's being a ham and it's not just like, you know, like overwrought writing. Like, you know, it's like all the things like that you don't realize until you watch them being performed. Any chance I know, being that it only came out a couple of weeks ago and I think we're all still not exactly running out to be in large public spaces, especially now. <laughs> um, you've you've seen uh, the tragedy of Macbeth, the new film with Denzel. Well, it's coming on Apple TV this coming Friday, so that's when I'll be watching it. <laughs> yeah, time to break that out because I need to see it. I was really, I was really hoping to see it on Christmas. It was like, yeah, no, not taking yeah. that chance. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it even came out in cinemas over here in the UK, or at least not cinemas in my area. It's in a couple of indie houses in yeah. Philadelphia near where I live, but it wasn't anywhere particularly local. It was like combination of big city, small theater, Omicross again now. No, yeah. I can I take mean, that having chance. said that, there was a little bit of pressure when I found out, oh, yeah, by the way, like, you know, you know, you're my Beth adaptation. It's coming out the same month as um, a new version of Macbeth, which is like starring your favourite actor of all time, Denzel Washington, your favourite actress of all time, Frances McDormand, and directed by Joel Cohen, one of your favourite directors of all time. Like, you know, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So if if it is bad luck to say the name of Macbeth in theatre circles, referring to it instead as the Scottish play, uh, how should we refer to Crimson Cage if we were to treat it with parallel superstition? Hmm, I don't know. Um, your pal John Lees' new wrestling comic available in shops now with a link to where you can buy it. That probably sounds like... <laughs> Correct! The best, way, the best way to sidestep all superstition is to like translate it into cash for me. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, there we go. Perfect. Perfect. Um, Honestly, though, I've never bought the whole Scottish thing, the whole Scottish play thing. But maybe because I am Scottish, so it's like, you know, like, we know. (laughs) For me, I'm just like saying the play. (laughs) Are there other Shakespeare sports mashups that you can think of or is wrestling like the one that really I think, I think my mind often like just drifts to wrestling I've said, I've said this before like you know like I feel like the possibilities are endless like you know either it be like you know like the one I always kind of keep on saying this isn't anything I'm actually pitching and developing this so like, I'm not spoiling anything here but I've always said like you know for me it feels like a natural fit like King Lear is like Vincent Man and there's like shitty children like you know <laughs> you know or, you know but yeah like you know there's all kinds of like ways it could but I think it's just because there's something about 
wrestling in general and Shakespeare that just feels like a natural hand in hand fit. I mean, like you like studied Shakespeare as well. So like, you know, you're probably like, this isn't the news to you, you know, but a lot of people have like, you know, a very specific idea of what you know like Shakespeare is. They think of it as like these grand prestige productions, the Royal Shakespeare Company with the Proscenium Arch and you know, and like Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart and like, you know, very high brow and very classy. When actually like back in the time it was performed, like it was like but back when like Shakespeare was actively producing stuff, like you know, in the Globe Theatre, it was like London was this like city in their eyes, and people wanted to go see a play. They'd like cross the bridge across the Thames from the nice part of London and like the seedy part of London with like you know the opium dens and the, the bars with like you know cockfighting and the brothels and like you know, and amidst all this, these dens of iniquity was the Globe Theatre. And then when you go into the Globe Theatre, it was like people were drinking, there was like you know prostitutes peddling their wares, like you know, and like you know, like and people were getting rowdy and tanked up and booze, and they'd go, and it wasn't like a piece of art stage the stage for the original globe theater was um you'd have the curtain and then people would walk out the curtain down a ramp into a, a kind of like square shaped stage which was surrounded in three sides by like you know an audience an audience who were cheering and booing um their, their, the various characters recognizing their favorites in terms of actors who playing the same part from play to play and they'd like have like you know chants and cheering going on so the performers you know on the stage had to perform very big and physical broad movements to try like and attract the attention of all these people who were cheering and laughing and doing their own thing it was actually a lot like going to a wrestling show like you know, like, you know but it's like, kind of like you know like parallels seem to fit you know like even historically I, I, I always laugh anytime anyone's like you know fan service is this recent thing it's like <laughs> the merry wives of windsor is fan service it's yeah. shakespeare bringing falstaff back because everybody loves falstaff yeah, you know, or even things like again going back to Hamlet, like you know, when they talk about the line, like you know, oh, like when he says something, but he's gone to England because they're all mad over in England. Like that's a line you just tell was made to pop the crowd and make them all go ah and start cheering and stuff. Like you know, there's all kind of little bits in that old blues place. Uh, you know, it, it, it's funny that I, I keep coming back to the the Vince McMahon as King Lear thing in my head and what that. What that means to me is I really want a version of King Lear that replicates the Vince McMahon meme. <laughs> he does what? <laughs> where, 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 uh, no, no, not even that. The one where he's getting like, like, like increasingly like. Oh, uh, yeah. The one where he's aroused, whatever you want to call it, until his face turns red and lasers come out of it. Yes. Plus, even you're talking about like the brand split, like, you know, like he's going to visit his children at different kingdoms. It's like you know, the Raw Kingdom and the SmackDown Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes yes this plan is good <laughs> um because the book is set in louisiana uh you're you're you are working in uh you know french creole cajun accents um how much was chris claremont's gambit a thing to be copied or avoided well that's actually an interesting um avenue of discussion to go into because Originally, there was no accents to book at all. It was set in Louisiana because um, I've always thought New Orleans is an interesting, like evocative location. But I never had any accents. I thought like it's not my place to put accents. Just have everyone talking like you know generic, like you know American voices. And it was actually like I think it was an accent note, and then this the creator says, I think we should try and make this feel more evocative. Make it try and create a sense of place. We should try and work in some like dialect here. Um, so. 
I studied like, you know, what would these characters be talking in? And actually, the more I studied that, like I'm thinking like Chuck Frenzy, like, you know, Charlene Frenzy are like, you know, white working class, like, you know, people from New Orleans. And the dialect they would likely be talking isn't like Cajun or like, you know, Creole. It would actually be what's called Yat dialect. Yat is in like, where Yat, which is like one of the phrases to say. And Yat dialect is actually a lot more in common with like New Jersey or something like this. Like, you know, like, you know, in the origins rather than like, and, at, so the, and, the more, and I spent like weeks reading up on it and like, and like listening to like, you know, examples of it and like doing like tutorials and things like that, you know that. But I actually like, you know, found out that specifically people who like speak in the Yat dialect and come from the areas get actively offended by like, you know, portrayals in media, like, you know, people who have like, you know, people talking like Cajun accents, you know, what I mean, mm-hmm. and stuff like this, you know, and they actually, actually really annoys them. You know, I guess it would be like, you know, like me, like reading a comic done by some Americans, you know, without all the Scottish people are in kilts going, I hide you, you know, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> our body, we last, you know, so like, I guess like, you know, I can get where that's coming from. Um, so yeah, like I did a lot of work in terms of like trying. And the only people who speak in kind of like Cajuny type accents are uh, the witches, or the Bayou Sisters. They're the only people who talk in that. And even in that, it's kind of like very old French. I was kind of drawn from rather than like more modern Cajun. But yeah, in terms of like the other characters, I was trying my best to do like this Yat dialect. But the weird thing was that I kind of went this weird circular motion event from having the characters have no dialect at all to them. And I really got immersed in like this Yat dialect. I started having like them talking quite densely in this dialect. So then like in a later pass of the like the skit, like on a now, now, now it's two, now it's new two, two Louisiana and you have to dial it back again a bit. So and then I had to kind of go backwards again and take away some of the dialect they put in to make sure it was still readable. Um, so yeah, it was a kind of like fun process and like, you know, I think it would be easier to kind of like get really wrapped up in it if I, you know, wanted to, but I think, like, you know, it's just finding that balance of, like, having enough in there to kind of, like, you know, bring some flavour and personality without, like, you know, sacrificing readability or making it too distracting. So hopefully I managed to achieve that balance. As a no. Scotsman trying to be American. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and and it's what like, because that's not the only thing you're balancing too, right? Because you're also working in, in wrestling jargon. You're also working in... You know, you're you're not copying Shakespearean language, but you know this is this is an adaptation of of Macbeth's or the Shakespearean elements. So, I, I mean, how much of that felt in the writing process, like like juggling all these different, you know, corners and clusters of language? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting you bring up the wrestling stuff as well, because one of the idea, one of the kind of creative things I thought of early on was like, I'm just going to use wrestling dialect. I'm not going to have like you know someone do the whole, as you know, this means this, like, you know, like, yeah, you know, so I'm just going to throw people in the deep end, like, you know, once it's like Deadwood or whatever, like, you know, like, you know, you watch it and you pick up things just in context, so I'll do the same thing, I'll just throw in some, like, you know, sort of, like, wrestling jargon and put it in a context that people will be able to hopefully pick up what it means. Originally, at one point in early conversations, you know, with AWA, we talked about the idea of having a glossary at the back of each issue, like, with the various, you know, that ended up falling by the wayside a little bit, but, but I, I did think it was fun just to kind of use these different words and kind of like, you know, introduce people to like, you know, new terminology or new phrases, you know, and hopefully they'll be able to largely follow what's going on just in like the context of like how characters are using them and how characters are employing these terms. Um, and hopefully they'll learn something new that will be very interesting to them. And in terms of like the Shakespeare part of that equation, I might like say, like I was very much thinking like, you know, rather than trying to adapt the text, I was just thinking like, well, how would modern people convey these ideas? But 
having said that, at least once per issue, I do try and work in like you know an actual Shakespeare line um, <laughs> or some version of it. Issue one, I kind of cheated because I have a throne of blood line rather. I saw a throne of blood line rather than a Shakespeare line. You know where like the Bayou sister says like you know your luck turns slower than your friends to um, Grud, which is a line from Throne of Blood. But other than that, like each subsequent issue, yeah, like you know there's like one line in there that comes direct from the play that I've kind of managed to kind of like tuck in, and <laughs> hopefully not too obvious a fashion. Okay. We should mention that you know while while Crimson Cage is coming out, uh, yeah, Crimson Cage also- issue one was in shops on eighth uh, of December, and mm-hmm. issue two comes out January nineteenth. Excellent. Yes, and at the same time, also at AWA, you've got the second volume of Hotel, uh, yep. your horror anthology with uh, Della Bortelagic and uh, Lee Lawfridge out now. Are you are you writing these things simultaneously, or is just this a trick well, of the, sort of the, the interesting schedule? thing was that um, going back to on the whole the infamous um, this is definitely happening in twenty twenty story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I've just realised that that's like you know I I thought like when you the first time you picked up sorry people who are listening to this podcast aren't going to be able to see this you know because you know probably you know like Dan's like drinking like a drink and I thought he had like a jar of hot dogs he was drinking like the hot dog water. <laughs> But because of the girl, I was like, wow, they, they do some funny things in America. But no, it's just a don't, don't worry, podcast listeners, it's just a drink <laughs> um, that I know of. Um, but yeah, like, um, what was I saying again? Oh, yeah, I was talking about. Um, so yeah, like, the funny story was that The Crimson Cage was very much like the book I was working on in 2020. Um, mm-hmm. Well, like, you know, like I was working through the issues of that at the time and working ahead on that. Um, because that got delayed, like everything got shut down essentially with the pandemic. Like, you know, like it's we spent, like, we obviously, AW were a new publisher that were just launched and this had thrown them for six in terms of their whole plan for what was coming in the year ahead. So we spent most of 2020, um, AWA saying we could be ready to go at any time, but we have to wait for the official all clear. So be ready to go, but we can't say when that's going to be. And was mm-hmm. it only at like the end of like 2020 they finally said like, no, yeah, we're good to go. So 2020, I spent like working on Crimson Cage. 2021, I spent writing um, Hotel Volume Two. Um, but then the way it worked out, like even though like Crimson Cage was like my 2020 book and the Hotel was my 2021 book, they both launched at the same time, like within one week of each other. I think it was like Hotel was like December 1st and then like Crimson Cage was a week later, December 8th. So it's like, it was a weird process because because these were my two books and they were both like, you know, like Crimson Cage was held back by the pandemic and then um, that meant Sync was held back as well because Alex wasn't wanting to start working on Sync again because we could be ready to start the Crimson Cage at any moment. So, Crimson, so then Sync got pushed back from 2021 to 2022. And then, like, obviously, Hotel, you know, was, you know, coming a bit later, too. So for a long period of time, it felt like I had nothing. Like, Hotel Volume 1 had came out, Mountainhead had came out. And then, like, for the rest of 2020 and 2021, I just had nothing. And there's, as a creator, like, as a writer, like, you know, when other people are, submit, are like saying, oh, here's my new thing that I have coming out, or they're announcing new projects, and you have nothing that you can talk about publicly, it starts to feel like you don't exist anymore, like, mm-hmm. you know, and again, it's a bit anxiety-inducing. So it was then, so it's kind of weird after this long period of silence, suddenly I had, like, not one but two books announced at the same time. It's like, you know, John Lee's comics are like buses, you know, you wait ages for one and two come along at once, you know. <laughs> but, and then I had the big Kickstarter campaign at the same time as well. Um but yeah, so it's a summary it was almost all, all systems go. But now, now that I know that I'm actually in it, like, you know, it keeps me busy in terms of promoting two books. But I think it's quite cool because on one hand, I think they've kind of cross-pollinated into each other a little bit because 
Hotel was like a great book, but even though it obviously it was like, you know, as I've mentioned, you know, I had the unfortunate timing of coming out during a global pandemic. Despite that, people really took to Hotel. Like, you know, I'm, I was really blown away. Obviously, like, you have high hopes for every comic you do, but I don't think even, like, the creative team, like, were quite, like, you know, anticipating just how much people would really love Hotel. And that might be the book that I've done that most people are like, oh, I love this comic. Um, So it meant, like, you know, that, based on the popularity of Hotel and a lot of people who hadn't read my earlier stuff started seeking that out and thought, well, based on me loving Hotel, I'm going to try The Crimson Cage. But then on the same side of that, The Crimson Cage is me reuniting with, like, um, Alex Cormack of Sync. And so then, like, that kind of brings along the Sync audience and who maybe haven't tried Hotel. And because I'm doing Hotel at the same time and I'm promoting them, Hannah, they then go back and try Hotel and Hotel Volume 1's available to get now. Like, you know, so they've cross-pollinated into each other quite well. Um, and yes, yeah, so it's, been, it's, been, it's been a challenge promoting two books at once. You know, usually, like, most years in the past, I've been lucky if I had, like, you know, one book out in a year, never mind, like, two at the same time. But... Um, it's been it's been a fun challenge and it's been like really rewarding. As I say, like you know, it's been it allowed me a chance to kind of like grow two overlapping audiences and hopefully expand the readership for both. So I can't even remember what the question was. Hopefully, I answered it. <laughs> That's all good. The best questions are when you get to the end and you're like, wait, what was the question? I said some words. I hope I answered it. Anyway, <laughs> happens more than you think, but. Uh, was was a volume two of Hotel always part of the plan, or was that you know uh, in response to the success of the first one? You, you no, it was it was not. It was very much not always part of the plan. Obviously, like I, I would have liked to have done more. I mean, my my, my kind of like mindset going into volume one of Hotel. Hotel was an interesting beast for me because that was my very first experience of like pitching, essentially like pitching a comic on spec like normally what happens with me is like i'll develop a comic on my own and then i'll take it around to various editors trying to pitch it and they'll tell me no um but so this was like a weird this was like a different example of like i met with axel alonso and he said we'd love to work with you come up with an idea for us like you know and then i based on that first conversation i've had with him back in like 2018 new york comic-con week i met him for lunch he'd said he loved the idea of like he liked the anthology element of sync. He said, and he mentioned something about he loved the setting of like an old roadside hotel. He had in mind the kind of noir, kind of like crime version of that. But my mind instantly went to horror because I'm an aforementioned horror loving weirdo. Um, but and then he also said like you know if you get anything else with clowns in it, and I'm like the fucking last thing I want to do is like more clowns, you know. But but you know then then it became an interesting challenge, and I was like you know well if I was doing more clowns, like what would I do? Like you know so then I came up with the idea of like you know Piero, which is very different from the kind of grubby like van dwelling like people snatching clowns of like sync. Um, so I kind of like drew from a different tradition and like, so then Hotel became this kind of like, it was like a ghost story, a Tales from the Crypt style horror anthology about this old hotel off Route 66, um, where people go like officially it doesn't exist, but perhaps they're driving down Route 66, they'll see the sign in the road, takes them there. And that became this great framing device for telling different stories in this location. And actually I think when I pitched it, the title of the pitch was Next Exit, No Vacancy. Um, which is a much less marketable title. <laughs> but, and then there was, that was another Axel Alonso special. He's like, you know, I've seen it as hotel with two L's and I'm like, you know, got it, you know. Um, <laughs> but, and yeah, like, so, yeah, we did, so we did volume one. And like, as I said, I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants when that happened. Like, as I say, like, I wasn't used to like, you know, 
pitching something specifically to get made and like, you know, then um, having a creative team assigned for me. Like, usually I have to find the team, but they had like all these like tenure talent, like Dalbert Talley, Lee Lowridge, and Sal Cipriano, all who have like Marvel DC, like legit credits. They're, they're all established names. I was like, the, the, the nobody in this group, you know. Um, and so, like, I was kind of like, and then, and then it's like you're part of a launch lineup of like, you know, a publisher, which is a bit nerve wracking as well. Like, what happens if like I'm a total letdown, I let the side down, yada, yada. But then again, people really took to this book. I think it was the second highest selling book in AWA's lineup behind only the resistance. Um, and like, you know, then the sales of the graphic novel when that came out were really strong as well. And like, the, the audience response was great. People really seemed to dig it. And so yeah, like the plat, like so, like obviously, I had hopes of like you know, oh yeah, I could maybe do a second volume of this. So while I was writing that, I put a lot of like breadcrumbs in that I could maybe pick up on and later, like you know, there's an issue, for example, you know, when you see like a kind of glowing green light coming from a hole under the crawl space, like and you go, what's under there? And you never see what's under there. But maybe that's something I can just leave there for later on if I ever get a chance to go back. But while I had breadcrumbs, the kind of brief that I got at the time was like end the last chapter in a way that if this is like the last issue of hotel ever it'll be a satisfying ending so that's what i had to do essentially but after the kind of great response after people were really enthusiastic about it after the great sales and people and all the people who constantly like were tagging me and tagging awa on twitter and saying like when are we getting more hotel i'd love to have more hotel i think it's thanks to them that eventually said you know i think again it was around that same time as crimson cage picked up again we you know it was like late 2020 where they said yeah we, 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 we you know we looked to the numbers and we want to do more hotel if you got any more ideas so yeah that was then we spent like the, like the late part of 2020 early 2021 like developing more ideas like where would we take the story next like i wanted to try and do something a little bit more ambitious where like the volume one has the framing device of it's like it's four chapters, four rooms, four chapters. It's all taking place at the same time over the weekend of like an eclipse at the hotel, and you're seeing like different events from the perspectives of different rooms. And I didn't want this one to be, oh, and then another eclipse happened, you know. And I was like, well, you know, so <laughs> I thought so I wanted to try and make it more ambitious, taking place over a longer period of time, digging a little bit more into the mythology of the hotel and its history and some of the characters there. So, like, I think and also the great thing is that, like I mentioned, um, I didn't know the creative team for volume one. There was a side, they were assigned to me. I'd written the scripts, then, oh, that's great. Thank you very much. You'll take these scripts, then we'll pass them on to Dalabar to draw. Um, this now, I know Dalabar, like we've met at New York Comic Con back in 2019 before the world ended, and like um, we've kept in touch. So I was able to say to Dalabar, like, what do you want to draw? Like, you know, like what would interest you? What things should I work in? You know, and this volume, I think, feels better. It feels more assured because of that. It's more collaborative. Like, I'm writing with like the style of Dalabord and me and mind, you know. And like, I feel, I think, like, it feels like we're more confident and the stories are better as a result of it. And hopefully, people will respond to that in kind when they read the book. And also, if you want to get more hotel, like, keep, keep on <laughs> asking us on Twitter. Maybe you'll do the same thing again with you. <laughs> absolutely uh and then uh you know talking about promoting two books at once just today uh vault comics put out a teaser uh you know something they tend to do at the beginning of the year with a bunch of the creators who are working on stuff uh for something that uh you and and george comadeus are working on that obviously we know nothing about and we won't know anything about for a while but uh you know is, do you have an idea, you know, pandemic and paper shortage and, and supply chain issues, with, you know, <laughs> willing, uh, how far down 20, the 2022 road we're looking at that for right now? 
Well, on one hand, like, you know, I'm really wary of saying anything in case like, I cause another pandemic or a global disaster after the last <laughs> time I made a bold claim of what I was going to do in a year. Um, but um, I kind of like, you know, I've said, I think I mentioned a little on Twitter, like, I'm really excited about 2022 because this year, Crimson Cage and Hotel, um, mm-hmm. like, they're mostly, they're mo- they, they both launched in December last year, but they're essentially 2022 books. That's something they're mostly going to be coming out. Um, I've got Sync coming back for volume three this year. I've got this new book with uh, Vault Comics, which I'm really excited about. Um, and it's funny you mentioned the little, little graphics, like, you know, where they have the names. Like, I remember this time last year, mm-hmm. I was looking like, you know, the kind of like the various names mentioned. Now, at a time a year ago, I thought I'd love to have like my name on one of the graphics a year from now. <laughs> and it happened, you know, I don't know like I've got like, I'm, I'm really chuffed about that. And like this project, like I'm, I, I can't say anything about it right now. Like you know, I'm not allowed to, like you know, share. I'm sure the time will come to properly announce it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I will say it's a project I'm super excited about. I'm really passionate about it. I've been talking about, like you know, in my promotional tour for the Crimson Cage, I was mentioning about how this is like you know. I've never felt more passionate and excited about an idea. Like, you know, it's really kind of like fired up my engines, you know. But if there's anything like that's made me feel like a similar level of excited, it's like this project I've got coming up with like Vault. Um, George um, is a really talented guy as well. Like, you know, he's somebody that you could go back like maybe four years around the time when Short Order Crooks was coming out. And, like, we were having DM conversations, thinking, like, let's come up with something to work on together. Like, you know, it'd be great. It never worked out for one reason or another. Like, you know, like, you know, we couldn't, you know. But, you know, so when it came to, like, working with Vault, and I'm saying, like, you know, like, who would you want to draw this? Like, you know, like, if you get any ideas, and, like, immediately I thought, like, you know, George would be amazing for this, like, you know. And so I'm really excited to be developing this project. That's going to be, um, I've got, I've actually got something else, coming out from a different publisher that's still to be announced too. Um, so, like, the two things are what I'll be writing this year, and I'll be very busy writing those things this year, to the point where actually, from the for the first time since, like, 2010, um, I wouldn't actually be pitching any comics because I'll be too busy um, with all the, <laughs> the stuff that I'm working on. I actually don't need to pitch anything else. I've got enough work lined up to keep me going. So hopefully, like, there's not a global pa- paper shortage and hopefully, like, you know, the books actually do come out, you know. <laughs> but um, like, as I say, it all goes to plan. Um, I'm really excited about what this year has in store. Um, I think this is going to be a really, like, exciting year, like, is this uh, some stories I've wanted to tell for the longest time, you know, with creators I'm really happy to be working with, with publishers I'm really happy to be working with, and, yeah, like I say, it's the kind of very much the kind of stage where I can't say much, and I really want to say more, but, um, you know, get me back on a few months, and we can hopefully chat more about it. That's that 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 that's fair, and uh, and I gotta I gotta say it is it is heartwarming to be having a conversation with somebody who is excited about stuff happening this coming year. Uh, yeah. That is fantastic. Uh, I mean, on one hand, I feel guilty because like in a world, you know, like perspective, like you know, but in a nightmare, you know, and I feel really guilty. Saying, you know, well, I'm quite happy with things I'm going, you know, but but um, you know, like I, yeah, I have to say, there's a lot of things I'm feeling optimistic about. I'm quite excited. That is fantastic. Uh, well, let, let's uh, let, let's cool down as we're wrapping up here. Uh, what are you reading right now? 
Um, my own comics. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I've yeah, okay, so gotta I'm, check them for typos. I mean, you know, yeah, no, okay, just like you know, I could read, I could read a lot of books. Why would they read a lot of books? My own excellent comics, or something, you know. Um, no, I would say I've been reading a bunch of good stuff. I've read like that Texas Bod's been a great series. I'm really been enjoying that. Um, I read Maniac of New York over Christmas. That was a blast. Like I really enjoyed that. Like, I'm a big slasher fan. Like, so that really kind of you know, like scratched my itch, you know. But also like you know tackling like you know infrastructure and bureaucracy in a really kind of interesting way as well. Um, I love Department of Truth, and that's a great series. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my favorite book of last year was Proctor Valley Road. I thought that was excellent. Um, like you know like my Grant Morrison's like my favorite comic writer, and that's been my favorite Grant Morrison thing in ages. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of non comics books without pictures, um, I read uh, My Heart Is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. Um. Just finished that last night. Actually, I was up to two a.m. reading the end. It was probably not a good idea. Um, and that's been all, and that's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. And yes, yeah, so, like you know, there's a whole bunch of good stuff out there. Man, I always think I'm gonna have all these examples to hand, then you blank on them, and you actually um, homesick pilots. That's another really good one. I really enjoyed that. I love um, that book so much. Yeah. <laughs> for me, for me, it, this is gonna sound like a weird thing, like you know, but. It feels like the most toyetic comic I've read since, like, um, maybe East of West in terms of, like, you know, <laughs> you, tell, you can tell if this came out, like, in the 1990s, like, there's even a whole action figure line, like, connected to it and stuff. And, like, I, I think it's, like, yeah, you have to... I want to say it was, like, issue, like, six or seven when they go into the basement of System Disrupt and there's, yeah. like, a tank with a cabin built onto it and then there's, like, it's there's just like a trash truck on legs. Just, I'm, like... This is the fucking Playmates Ninja Turtle line from 1988, and I'm here for it. It's just so much great ideas. I've been loving like the Reckless uh, graphic novel series, Brubaker mm-hmm. and Phillips. Like, you know, that's been really good quality. I've actually uh, sitting on my reading desk now. The next thing I'm going to read is um, Friday, also Ooh. by Brubaker. I've not read that yet, but that's the next thing on my agenda. Just yeah. read that last weekend myself. Oh, <laughs> good. So, is it good? Oh, yeah. Um, and um, I recently, going back to the wrestling theme, I recently read um, Global Wrestling Alliance by Josh Hicks, which is a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, a lot of good stuff out there. No way to look. Right on. Well, uh, John, this has been uh, a fantastic conversation. Uh, final question before we let you go. How can people follow you online and keep up with Crimson Cage Hotel uh, and everything that you have uh, going on, you're going to be having going on this year? Oh, I love talking about myself. Favorite topic. Um, I, yeah, okay. So we've got. Um, I'm on Twitter at John Lee's nine two seven. Also on Instagram at John Lee's nine two seven. Um, you can find me. My newsletter is probably the best kind of source for all things John. Um, you can find that at deepender.johnleescomments.com. That's deep dash ender.johnleescomments.com. Um, if you go on there, um, you will get a bunch of free comics um, right off the bat when you sign up. And then every week you'll get a newsletter from me and Friday. I've never missed a newsletter going back to like 2017. Um, and you'll get like an essay um, on various topics and you'll get all the latest news on what's going on with me. you get previews of upcoming comics. You'll get like solicits, previews of upcoming release dates, like all these news many events I'm doing. Then you also get my various thoughts on the movies and comics that I've been reading um, or watching. And yeah, then on top of that, also I've got a Patreon page, uh, patreon.com forward slash John Lees. Um, 
and I have a whole bunch of content in that. Like, if you know, depending on what pledge level you have, I've got like weekly essays there. I've got behind the scenes, page by page breakdowns of sync. I've got um, a monthly story that I write there, a prose story. Um, I've got like I release stuff in my script archives and do essays like breaking down the process of making the script. And yeah, a whole bunch of cool stuff in there. So if you like the newsletter and want more John Goodness in your face, um, go to patreon.com forward slash John Lees. Right on. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks for letting me talk a lot and so much that I forgot what you were asking me at times. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, Chris is on Infinite Earths, and the new Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by our own Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, when there was one set of footprints in the sand, that's when the Hulk carried you. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.